Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. A second whistleblower is raising new doubts about an alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria, and with it, new concerns that a top UN watchdog is compromised. Just like the first whistleblower, the new whistleblower is an official with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW. This person, a senior scientist, was on the ground when the OPCW investigated allegations that the Syrian government killed dozens of people in the city of Douma in April 2018. This allegation prompted the US, France, and Britain to bomb three sites in Syria one week later. The OPCW later pinned blame on the Syrian government, lending justification to the US-led strikes. But earlier this year, a member of the OPCW team leaked a suppressed engineering assessment that challenged the OPCW's conclusions. The leaked report found that the gas cylinders at the scene in Douma were likely, quote, manually placed. This suggested the attack was staged. <clears throat> and now another member of the OPCW team, the second whistleblower, has come forward. This whistleblower recently delivered testimony in front of a panel convened by the Courage Foundation, a journalist and whistleblower protection organization founded by WikiLeaks. In a statement, the panel said this, quote, we are unanimous in expressing our alarm over unacceptable practices in the investigation. We became convinced by the testimony that key information about chemical analyses, toxicology consultations, ballistic studies, and witness testimonies was suppressed, ostensibly to favor a preordained conclusion, unquote. The panel includes Jose Bustani, the OPCW's first director general. Another panelist, veteran journalist Jonathan Steele, discussed the whistleblower's testimony with BBC News. He claims he was in charge of picking up the samples in the affected areas and in neutral areas to check whether there were chlorine derivatives there. And? And he found that there was no difference. So it rather suggested there was no chemical gas attack because in the buildings where the people allegedly died, there was no extra chlorine organic chlorinated organic chemicals than in the normal streets elsewhere. I mean, I put this to the OPCW for comment and they haven't yet replied, but it, it rather suggests that a lot of this was propaganda. Propaganda led by? Led by the rebel side to try and bring in American planes, which in fact did happen. Well, to discuss this new whistleblower's revelations, I spoke recently to Theodore Postal, award-winning professor of science, technology, and national security policy at MIT. Professor Postal has conducted studies that have also raised doubts about allegations of chemical weapons attacks by the Syrian government. One of the studies was recently at the center of an academic controversy, as we discuss during this interview. Ted Postal, welcome to Pushback. Last time we had you on, it was to discuss the revelations from a first whistleblower from the OPCW. Now we have a second whistleblower, someone who was on the ground. Uh, what is your reaction to what we've heard so far? Well, uh, the second whistleblower simply confirms what the earlier report showed. And also, I should say that uh, I have now gone through the original, you know, the OPCW report that was provided to the UN Security Council. And um, there's really, there's, the report is, uh, is pretty remarkable because it contains all kinds of technical details that bear no relationship at all 
to what uh, was claimed as a finding. It's really astonishing. So it, it appears that uh, nobody with, uh, uh, with, with, who was technically literate was involved in uh, reviewing this before it was sent out to the UN Security Council. I'm sure the Russians and Chinese are, uh, have good people looking at this, so they know that there's a real problem with this report. But of course, um, uh, in terms of the um, uh, people on the outside, in particular the media, it looks like nobody with a, uh, with a, a serious um, uh, technical, um, uh, technical uh, experience uh, looked at this thing and because you would immediately realize there was something very wrong with uh, what was shown in the report as proof and what was actually the case. Well, this is why we're talking to you now. And, you know, you raise concerns about this report and you also raise concerns based on what the first whistleblower said, which is that the, the physics here just did not add up. But now you have a second whistleblower who was on the ground, who collected chemical samples at the scene in Duma and said basically that there was no difference between chemical samples collected outside the alleged attack scene and uh, chemical samples collected inside the alleged attack scene. Uh, more evidence then uh, to those who saw, who reviewed the whistleblower's evidence according to the panel that was convened that this whole thing was staged. What is your assessment of what you've heard so far from the second whistleblower? Well, I think um, uh, it's clear from the findings of the second whistleblower that the staging effort uh, did not include the planting of false chemical evidence. Uh, that's, that is to say, I'm not suggesting, what, what, what the whistleblower established is that there's, there isn't even false uh, chemical evidence. In the case of Khan Shei Kun, which happened a year earlier, uh, there was an attempt to uh, uh, create a, a, false, a, a false trail of, um, of samples where they had, uh, for example, they poisoned the goat uh, with sarin, the local people who, who staged that scene, and then they provided the UN, um, uh, uh, the OPCW, with uh, samples that had been tampered with. So the, U, so the OPCW in that case found sarin on the samples, but of course, it, had the samples been subjected to a proper chain of custody, they would have never found any samples because the uh, the people on the scene uh, produced the sarin and then uh, used it to further uh, mislead the OPCW. Although, in that case, the OPCW also should have known there was a problem because, on, in that case, the goat that was supposedly dead at the scene had drag marks behind it. So the carcass was obviously dumped from a truck and then dragged over to the location where it was shown on videos. In this case, we have a, um, a whistleblower who was on the ground, who's a real expert, and the whistleblower looked for evidence and couldn't find any evidence uh, of, uh, of chemical release. So that's further evidence of how sloppily uh, the scene was uh, staged. And it also is, further, is a further indictment of the OPCW for uh, not um, producing an accurate report, since they clearly I mean, there's no excuse at any level. This uh, expert went to 
the person in charge of the OPCW integrity analysis and reported this. And he, and he was basically shut down. And uh, there's this other report that was obviously released, the earlier whistleblower report, which was obviously done by a real group of first-class professional experts. And that was uh, dismissed by this ambassador who um, is the head of the OPCW at the, at the moment. And there's no way he's doing his job if, if, if he didn't look at this uh, report. So uh, to, to, to suggest that this report that was originally released was somehow a difference of opinion uh, is, is totally ridiculous from a technical analytical point of view. I mean, when you look at the report that the uh, that was released and that the uh, this ambassador from the OPCW is defending none of the technical findings none of the technical analysis in the report matches what the report claims it's just ridiculous and so compounding this is you have now apparently the second whistleblower who we have not heard directly from yet uh, but reportedly according to WikiLeaks and the Courage Foundation which convened this panel where the second whistleblower testified. According to them, the second whistleblower wants to now testify publicly and said that he tried to bring his concerns to the top levels of the, of the OPCW, but that he was silenced. And you mentioned chain of custody, and I think it's important to stress why that's so important, is because the samples and evidence that the OPC received from Khan Sheikhoun uh, came from an area that was controlled by militants, militants fighting the Assad government in Syria, and in both cases, Khan Sheikhoun in 2017 and Duma in 2018, a year later basically, both those instances, both those claims of an Assad uh, government chemical weapons attack led to U.S. airstrikes, which is all the more reason why it's important to subject this to scrutiny. Let me read to you, Ted, um, a quote from one of the members of the WikiLeaks panel that it convened to hear from the second whistleblower. Uh, his name is Jose Bustani, and he is the first director general of the OPCW. Uh, uh, let, me, let me interrupt for a second. Uh, Bustani uh, was considered for a Nobel Prize because of the great job he did putting together the OPCW. Mm. So he has a big interest in, in making sure this organization functions. Well, let me read you the quote. He says, the convincing evidence of regular behavior in the OPCW investigation of the alleged Duma chemical attack confirms doubts and suspicions I already had. I could make no sense of what I was reading in the international press. Even official reports of investigations seemed incoherent at best. The picture is certainly clearer now, although very disturbing. Well, I, I, I agree completely uh, with his assessment. In fact, I've already written him. I haven't heard yet back from him. And I sent him copies of uh, my assessment as well. And so um, uh, I think he and this panel, which I've also uh, communicated with, uh, have those copies now, and uh, I, I know they're looking at it. I, I've already had some, you know, some preliminary uh, exchanges with them. Okay, so speaking of your assessment, let's talk about a controversy that you were recently involved in. You submitted uh, your findings. You studied the Duma attack and the available evidence. Uh, your paper, which was co-written, I believe, uh, with other academics, was uh, accepted by a journal called Science and Global Security. It was due to be published, but then it came under heavy pressure, and at pretty much the last minute, 
or even after probably I think even after the journal went to press, if I if I'm not mistaken, the journal actually pulled your paper and did not publish it. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yes. First of all, the pa- just just a minor. Uh, the paper was on Khan Sheikhoun. Uh, as uh, we showed, uh, the paper was a technical uh, analysis that showed that the uh, UN claim that sarin was released from a particular site could not possibly be true. That's the bottom line of that technical analysis. And again, Khan Sheikhoun is an attack in April 2017. It right. led to the first uh, Trump administration strike on the Syrian government, uh, followed a year later by Duma. Correct, correct. Well, what happened there is the paper uh, underwent uh, a quite arduous uh, referee process, at least from my point of view. Uh, they used a referee who was obviously uh, technically incompetent and who also looked like the referee was either a member of the Bellingcat organization or closely affiliated with the Bellingcat organization. The reason that became apparent is the referee was quoting Bellingcat throughout their uh, attempt to uh, discredit the article. So that was kind of an irregularity from the point of view of the journal to use a referee that really was not technically competent and who was obviously uh, politically biased. Let's explain. Let's explain for a second what Bellingcat is. It's a website uh, with Bell- Bellingcat is an organization headed by a man, uh, Elliot Higgins, who has um, no knowledge of any science at all. If for anyone who questions that, uh, just look up um, uh, Higgins Postal Debate on YouTube, and you'll see. Uh, discussion, if you want to d- dignify it with that name, between him and me. Uh, and uh, he has uh, no knowledge of science. He has no interest in science. His only way of dealing with questions that are raised that have a scientific foundation is to try to insult the uh, person asking the questions and then and, and then sort of see if they, if they can uh, get them into, divert them into a fight. I, I refuse to do that as anybody who looks at the panel will see, but he just went one insult after another as I focused on technical questions, none of which he could answer. So he is uh, kind of a a parrot of the times. I would say uh, he's kind of one of these strange phenomena that come out of the the, uh, cesspool of the internet, is is the way I see him. And uh, uh, he has no expertise. He just yells very loud. And unfortunately, uh, he's got support of uh, some media uh, organizations that should have higher standards. For example, this debate occurred uh, at uh, Gold's, uh, uh, Goldsmiths University of London in October, and uh, at a, an organization called the Center for Investigative Journalism. And none of these people who I talked to after the debate reacted to his unbelievably unprofessional behavior. They just kept on trying to make excuses for him. To me, that's uh, a sign of the of a general decay in the professional uh, professionalism of the mainstream press, and uh, they should be ashamed of themselves for that for reacting that way. And as far as I know, he still. Is affiliated with them. I would have I would have thrown him out of my program 
if he had done that uh, in, in any situation. It was just totally unprofessional behavior. So let me also uh, uh, pause Ted and say that you know Bellingcat is not just supported by uh, some mainstream news sources and cited by an authority there. The criticism of it also is that it receives funding from organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy, a, a U.S. government aim. And the, and the, the, the critique of Bellingcat, it's something I have not looked in, into too in depth, but it's out there, you can read about it, is that they basically have a pattern of parroting whatever the Western government line is when it comes to official enemies. Occasionally under heavy pressure, they'll do some cursory studies of places like Yemen, uh, which is under bombardment by U.S.-backed forces. But generally, their targets also happen to coincide with who the targets of U.S. proxy wars and U.S. regime change operations are. Well, they're, they're, um, uh, they, have, uh, they have no scientific credibility at any level that I can see. Anything that I've looked at in detail, there's a lot of stuff they've done. So I can't say that everything uh, is a problem, but I can say everything that I've looked at that had a scientific component has been uh, just ridiculous, not even not even close. I mean, the only way to describe it would be ridiculous. They, they do have a guy, this guy, Ellie Weissman, who's at the Center for Investigative Journalism, who has done some interesting work. Now, Weisman has no technical capabilities, but he is uh, good at uh, uh, forensic evidence, that, that is to say, things you can photograph. Uh, but even he uh, has uh, been involved in things that I must say I was troubled to see. For example, uh, some of the work he did on Duma uh, looks doesn't look accurate, doesn't look like it's been, uh, uh, things were not to the proper scale, for example, in diagrams. So they led to, uh, they gave a misleading impression. And uh, that wasn't science, but it, it you know, it, it, it might be manipulation of, of actual data. You know, I, I don't want to go too far afield, but you know, this, rem this reminds me that uh, the OPCW, when it talked about, when it was defending its uh, fact-finding process and its analysis of Duma, it mentioned that it consulted with outside experts. Uh, this was after a, the first whistleblower came out and said that its conclusions were wrong and, and had contradicted the own findings of their own experts, the, the same expert who leaked uh, that first analysis that was suppressed. Which makes me wonder, do you think it's possible that the OPCW itself relied on people from Bellingcat? Uh, I'll bet you a nickel they did. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, report on Khan Sheikhoun, the earlier uh, event, um, mimicked uh, a Bellingcat a fraudulent Bellingcat uh, rendition of what happened. It was so close that they even used Bellingcat uh, images mm. in, the, in the OPCW report. So these uh, these people, who I want to underscore, by any serious professional measure, have no technical expertise, none, are misrepresented as experts. So I think we will find we would find that they were a significant input. Uh, into the um, uh, into the uh, uh, Kun analysis, and I couldn't help uh, but notice in the um, first whistle whistleblower report on Duma, 
which was an extremely professional report, very neutral in its tone, um, at one point said something that only a professional who's totally disgusted would have put in that report. They actually call, they, they, they talked about just a one line where they talked about other so-called experts. Hmm. No serious professional. If I were uh, at odds with another professional's understanding of the problem, of a problem, and I thought that it was a professional interpretation, but I disagreed with it, I would never describe them as a so-called expert. Hmm. I would describe them as an expert who I have a different, who I have a different uh, understand, who reached a different conclusion, and here's why I disagree with that conclusion. But I would never call them a so-called expert. And and I think uh, th these people were so fed up, we saw that creep into their report. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Bring us back then to what happened with your report. So you have submitted it to this prestigious journal. It's undergoing peer review. After that happens, then a, a referee comes in, as you were talking about before, and, and you're suspecting here that there's some involvement or some reliance on Bellingcat. I, I think this uh, referee was no doubt uh, associated with Bellingcat in some way, if not in Bellingcat, no doubt. And uh, the referee brought up all kinds of things that were totally unrelated to the article, and the referee was meandering and contradicting themselves at different points in their referee, in their, in their referee report. So I was uh, so um, befuddled on how to address it, I decided uh, to, uh, to simply sit down and write a tutorial on all the issues the referee brought up, because it would have been shorter to write a tutorial that showed that the referee's foundations didn't exist, that all the analytical points were being raised uh, didn't exist, rather than point by point uh, responding, because some of the points contradicted earlier points. And it would have been a, an, an incoherent response, just as the, the, the referee's report was incoherent. So I produced a 43-page document and the document is available to the public because I've made it available. Uh, I, can't, I can't make available the referee's report because that's supposed to be confidential. But I wrote this report in response. That's my report, so I've made it available. And anybody who wants to read it can see the kinds of issues that this referee brought up, which were nonsense. And I'm sorry. Well, I want to be clear. This was after your report was peer-reviewed, right? Well, this was the peer-review process. Okay, this is the period, okay. And immediately, immediately after receiving my 43-page report, the journal accepted the article. Now, my assumption at the time was that this was okay. Sometimes an article is, 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 uh, is, is controversial. And so what, a, what, a, what an editor of a journal might actually do is choose a, a big critic of the article and just so the editor can see what the critic can put out as a critique. And then the editor can then see the response by the authors of the article. And then since the editor is an expert themselves, certainly is the case with science and global security, all the editors are very well-trained scientists. I know them personally. So they can look at this 
And so my reaction when they just immediately accepted the article was when they looked at this, got this referee report, they could see it was nonsense. They could see my response was totally cohesive and answered every one of the questions. So they just said, okay, let's go ahead. So then all of a sudden, I think it's like five or six months later, they decide, so this report is accepted for publication. I want to make it clear. This has been refereed and accepted for publication. And then four or five months later, I all of a sudden get a phone call and they say they decided they can't publish it because there was something, has nothing to do, they, they emphasized, has nothing to do with the science in the article. So, so this raised my concerns too. I said, if it has nothing to do with, this, with the science in the article, how can you possibly change your mind about an article that was refereed and accepted by the journal? So they had this um, inexplicable argument that somehow the process of refereeing had to be a double blind review. That is to say, neither side should have known who the other was. Well, one, the referee obviously knew who I was, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't know, I still don't know who the referee was. And so because the process is not double blind, somehow they can't accept uh, the article. They can't publish the article. It's the most, it, it, it's a truly ridiculous um, argument. Really, all anybody has to do now with science and global security to stop the publication of an article that they don't want to see published is to somehow, uh, if they get chosen as a referee, reveal that they know the authors of the article. And this is doubly crazy because when you are refereeing an article, you're often a specialist in the field who is asked to be a referee because you're a specialist. So very commonly, in all scientific uh, review processes, the referees know who the author is. There's an attempt to shield the author identities and the referees identities from each other. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that the referees never know who the author is, is ridiculous. You know, if, if you were reviewing uh, Watson's paper on the double helix, you would know who wrote that paper because you're, you would have to be a deeply involved expert in the field of crystallography at the time and, 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 and studying the structure of the gene. And, you know, so if in, your case, not, in your case, you've been very vocal about uh, on this issue and you've produced reports already that certainly uh, have been widely distributed and discussed. Absolutely. There's no way that anybody involved would have not known that I was an author uh, on that uh, paper. So, um, so what do you think happened? What do you think? Who, who do you think uh, brought this pressure on the journal? Well, I, I honestly don't know what happened. Let me let me say that I was I was a member of the editorial board of that journal, probably for about thirty years, and I immediately resigned from the editorial board. And I told them that and I think they believe me because they know who I am, I told them that if this article had nothing to do with me, if I was not a co-author, and they did this to any article, on any article, I would resign from the editorial board because I think the editorial board uh, inadvertently, I, I don't think they're being dishonest. 
maybe with themselves they're being uh, dishonest. Uh, I think they're honest. They honestly believe what they're telling me. But I think what probably happened is they saw all this noise. For example, um, Bellingcat started accusing uh, accusing the authors of the article as being paid by the Chinese and the Russian governments. <laughs> you know, now, one of my author, lead authors, uh, originally from China, he's an American citizen. Another author is originally from Russia. Uh, and this is the evidence that Mr. Higgins thinks proves that the article was funded by the Chinese and, and, and Russian governments. This is like, uh, this is so silly. Uh, it is laughable. And, uh, and I, don't think, I don't think the editors uh, were aware of the vitriol uh, of these people. And they were probably taken aback and then just said, we, we don't want to get pulled into this. Well, I have news for them. They have been pulled into it. Yeah, because the part of the problem here is the people who have promoted the proxy war in Syria, promoted things like U.S. military intervention, have done a very good job at conflating um, uh, what they deem to be, uh, what they define as support for the Assad government, which is an official U.S. enemy, and uh, skepticism of uh, the available evidence and being opposed to using military force on false grounds, as in the case, uh, if indeed these chemical attacks were manipulated, as would be the case of Duma and Khan Sheikhun. And people like Bellingcat, in the service, I think, of, of promoting U.S. Uh, foreign policy goals and Western foreign policy goals, have done a very good job at making that conflation. This guy Higgins, this guy Higgins, actually during this panel discussion, which I think anybody who's really interested in this should look at it. It's just because it's amusing as well as re revealing. At one point in this panel discussion, he tells me that he finds me disgusting because uh, I'm aiding uh, war criminals get away with uh, mass murder. Now, it didn't occur to him, as I because I responded to that, that just because Assad is a war criminal, which I think he is, Assad is a war criminal, no question about it, just because Assad is a war criminal doesn't mean that there weren't other criminals who actually caused this particular, who are actually responsible for this particular event. So um, calling the situation as you see it is what we try to do in our courts. Now, the courts are highly imperfect, as everyone knows, but what you try to do is judge the evidence in a particular court case. You may think the person in the court case is a murderer, but your job may be to determine whether or not they committed a particular murder. And if they committed another murder, they ought to be tried for that and convicted. But, but uh, this idea that because you think they committed another murder, they must be found guilty for a murder that hasn't been proven, to me, it's, it's against international justice. If you're going to have a system of international law, the UN needs to make sure that it has evidence to support its claims, because people are going to, going to stop showing any respect for international law if this is the way they're going to go about business. That's my real concern. My concern is respect for international law and the UN in the long run. The UN has failed in this particular case. And as we wrap, there is a uh, upcoming summit of the OPCW uh, in late November. 
the according to the Courage Foundation, which convened the panel featuring the new whistleblower, uh, this whistleblower wants to speak, wants to address uh, this convention. Do you think that will happen? And do, do you have any hope uh, that the, this revelation, and now with the weight of not just experts like yourself, but the founding director general, Jose Bustani of the OPCW, do you think that could be enough to, uh, to make a change here, to bring sufficient pressure on the OPCW to be accountable and to respect the findings of its own experts? If it doesn't happen, all I can say is shame on the OPCW and also shame on the UN, including the Secretary General of the UN, who should step in here and make sure that all voices are heard. I've actually had informal side discussions, and I've indicated that I would like to go and talk to this group at the OPCW. And I, I really want to go, and I'm able to go. I'm, you know, I'm just a hot skip and a jump away in Boston, and I'd be happy to go. Let me add too, uh, shame also on, I think, Western media that has completely ignored this story. You have an explosive case where you have two whistleblowers from the world's top chemical weapons watchdog blowing the whistle. And blowing the whistle right now is a big topic in Washington. Blowing the whistle and pointing to potential fraud to produce a result that ultimately justifies U.S. military action. And even here you have, uh, you know, even on the uh, adversarial progressive side, you have media outlets ignoring the story. And I find that shameful as well. All right, so we're going to wrap there. Ted Postal is Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology, and International Security at MIT. Professor Postal, thanks very much. Thank you. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity.